tell you what, I want to use all the time that we have to be in God's Word, but uh, I want to begin by drawing your attention to the fill-in-the-blank that was on the sheet that was handed to you uh, when you walked in. Now, of course, we still have our ushers involved in uh, receiving the tithes and offerings, so I understand it's hard to do a million things at one time. Uh, but I want to begin with just a few thoughts. When I say memorial, what do you think of? Uh, funeral, is that, you know, I've done a lot of memorials that were funerals. Are there other things that are memorials? Um, quick show of hands, how many of you have seen the memorials in Washington, D.C.? All right, so not all of them are uh, funeral related, but, but there's a lot of them just remembering something that significantly happened. Uh, one of the most important memorials I've ever been to in my life was in Israel, and it was a Holocaust museum. Uh, going to the Holocaust Museum in Israel is a whole different experience. Um, my daughter, who's 15, is studying World War II and the Nazi reign and the Holocaust. And I'm watching her get really, really hurt and broken up by it. Um, as a dad, I want to gather around her and say, it's okay. But what's the problem with that? It's not okay. And, and so I'm torn because what occurred needs to be remembered or else we're going to do it again. And as painful as it is, we need to walk through that. And, and unfortunately, all that created it is not gone. We just did uh, recently the, the walk for the dream, MLK. It's not done. And, and it looks like we're looking back to something of the past. And, and in some of our little bubbles, it feels like that was the past. But it's not. We're still walking through it. We're still trying to fix stuff. And, 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 and I guess my whole point in saying... There are some things that need to be remembered, right? And, and that's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. Some memories are meant to be relived. Some memories are meant to be relived. And the most important memory that influences all those other memorials is the cross. We cannot forget the cross. It's, it's why we uh, here at Bridgeway every full weekend of the month we do communion. Why? Is it because we long for tasteless cracker? <laughs> right? Or the small ant-sized amount of drink? Yes. Yeah, no, it's not. It's, it's because, why? It's because we got to remember the cross. And one of the most uh, common words used in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament was remember. Just remember that I'm your God. Remember that I am good. Remember that I'm for you and remember that you are my people. I want you to remember that if I have set people free in the past, I can set people free right now. I, I want you to remember that I'm the God of all creation and I want you to remember that I'm the sustainer of life. I want you to remember, right? That's what God says. And, and the, the most critical act of his love demonstration is the cross. So as much as it's difficult to walk back through it, and we've spent a number of weeks as a church talking about our greatest hero, the one that we love the most, hanging, being beaten, on trial, and, and that's not what we want to focus on, and yet we must, right? 
I mean, we want to jump automatically to the resurrection. We want to jump all the way to the open tomb. And I think that's where we find peace and comfort. But you don't have an open tomb if you don't have the cross. And so sometimes we just have to settle down, slow down into it, and say, God, thank you for the cross, right? I mean, that's what we must do. So the last time we were together, Jesus is hanging there, and after everything that occurred, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he said three words in English, one word in Greek. It is finished. And with that, his breath was gone and he gave up his spirit. Nobody dies like that. What happened next? That's where our story begins today. We're going to combine Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We will go ahead and throw those up on the screen. It begins like this. And behold, seriously, check this out. Yeah, y'all know that? All right, all right. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That could be the whole sermon right there. Now, it won't be because I have the gift of going long. (laughs) But it could be. It could be. And if you're going to preach it, you can just preach that one line. In that one line, you will find out is the gospel. In that one line is the power of the cross. In that one line will lead you to either rededication or salvation, depending on where your heart's at. That one line, why? What does it mean? Well, we need a little background. Now, some of you know this. You grew up in church. Some of us are brand new to all this, and we don't understand at all why a curtain being torn is a big deal. In the Old Testament, God said to his people, I want to be with you. And because I'm always with you and you don't recognize it, you don't feel it, you don't know it. I want a physical representation on earth that says that I'm with you. So I want you to make kind of a a mobile house of God. I want you to create what we call the tabernacle. And it was made out of curtains so it could be broken down and moved and set back up and each and every time that they went to a new location. It was all made of curtains, but inside the little building, a curtain divided it. And it divided it from the holy place where the priests would go consistently to the holy of holies where God was. Now, is God only contained in that little room? No, that was all symbolic. Inside that little room was the Ark of the Covenant. On top of it was two cherubim with their their wings outstretched. And right in the middle of that, on the lid, God goes, if you want to look at a location to talk to me, look right on the lid. That's what I'm going to call the mercy seat. And I will be there with you. Now, nobody could go in there. Once we got it into being a temple and it was a fixed wall place, they kept one curtain. That one curtain divided. It was a thick curtain, but it was a curtain. It divided between the holiness of God and us. And the point was, you can't handle me. That was the whole point, right? You cannot handle the holiness, the righteousness of God. If God shows up in all of his glory, all the yuck in us will break apart. And it's just going to shatter us completely. We cannot be in the almighty presence of the Trinity. So we said... In, in protection of you, I'm going to put this curtain. In the whole idea that I don't hang out with sin, I'm going to put this curtain. And so we are in two different places and we are divided. 
Only one time a year did the Jewish high priest be able to go into that room. And only after all this ritual purification, the whole town got involved in it. And he's washing and he's washing again and then he's washing again. And, and he's sprinkling blood and he's doing all these different things. Only after all that does he get to go in one day. Because that's just too holy. That's where God is. But what happened when Jesus died? It was ripped. But it was ripped from the top to the bottom. That's God. And he goes, no more separation. No more you, not with me. No more me, not with you. Shh, tears it apart. I'm coming to you. And I want you to walk in and be with me. Because it is not because you're righteous, it's because my son is righteous. It is not because you did everything right, it's that he did everything right. It is not because you are sinless, it is because he is sinless. And he has paid the price for you, and he has cleansed you fully and completely. You are now a saint, you are now holy in my sight. You are now purified, you are now cleansed, you are now forgiven, you are now poured over with grace. You are now acceptable in my sight, because my son Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, and he traded his for your garbage life and now you are as righteous as he is whoa come on and god said all that with one tear we're together now and nothing will ever keep us apart how incredible is that right that's one whole sermon let's close no <laughs> what happened next an earthquake. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Are earthquakes important in the Bible? They actually are. Um, a quick show of hands. How many of you have been in an earthquake? Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, unsettling? <laughs> yeah. There's certain stuff that shouldn't move, right? And when it moves, no bueno. Okay? We're, uh, we don't want that. We don't want that. Here's what's ironic. I'm 44 years old and I've never been in an earthquake. I've lived in California my entire life. Right? And I'm not saying I want to go in one. I'm just saying I've never felt one. So all the East Coast feed that's coming in going, man, everybody in California is an earthquake. I'm not. And I've been around for almost half a century. Right? But things aren't supposed to move like ground. Right? Ground's not supposed to roll. There's certain things that are not supposed to adjust. When they do, it's very unsettling. So why does God use an earthquake? He is explaining that he is more powerful than the immovable when he walks in you know how poetically the bible talks about and the mountains will tremble before him that's called an earthquake that the mountains actually are like he's here right all of creation begins to rattle because they're coming apart at the seams going you don't understand who it is I mean, when he comes in, when he speaks, and even the, even the cherubim, even the angels in heaven, that there's times when John the Revelator uh, would say, and I heard a sound like an earthquake, and it was just their voice. I mean, it, just a powerful explosion of the holiness and power of the heavens. It comes in. Many times God uses it for judgment. That when the, an earthquake hits, God's bringing in uh, and bringing down the hammer, Right? That's kind of what an earthquake is all about. All this starts to erupt after Jesus dies. Because big things are happening. 
And then this happened. The tombs also were opened. Okay, makes sense. If a lot of their tombs are made out of rock and you have an earthquake, it's going to wreck stuff, right? So tombs are going to open. That's really natural. And right by, uh, I should say, right at the rim of the Mount of Olives in Israel, even today, if you look at any pictures of Jerusalem, look across the ravine from the city. And on the other hill is the Mount of Olives where the Jews believe that the Messiah will come back. It is a massive cemetery. Why? Because they know that when the Messiah comes back, the dead will rise and they want to get up first. So they pay big money to be buried right there so they can get up first. Now, when you have that many cemeteries and bone boxes and all these different things all made out of rock and an earthquake hits, what's going to happen? A bunch of them are going to topple, they're going to break open, stuff like that. That's all very natural. What happens next is not. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, which is weird. The earthquake was on Friday. They didn't come into the city until, what, Sunday? What in the world were they doing? They're like checking their GPS. They're like, what? What's happening here? Can't get any cell coverage. I don't know. I don't know what they're doing for that whole time. But they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That's creepy. Is it not? Knock at the door. George, what are you doing here? (laughs) Well, I live here. Who's that guy? Well, that's my new husband, Bob. (laughs) Oops. Right? I mean, how weird is that going to be? I thought you said he was dead. He was! (laughs) Right? (laughs) We're very sure of that. Right? Uh, This stuff really happened. This is not fable. It's not fairy tale. It's legit. This is history. And it came in and a bunch of people saw it as testimony. They could testify to that. It's a preview that when God is around, his people always live. It's a testimony that when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first. It's a testimony that if he's your God and you're his kid, you never die. It's a testimony that death can't hold down anyone God says will live. You understand? It's the power of God. Now, when the centurion, the guy who's in charge of the execution squad, the guy that was overseeing the events that put Jesus on the cross, a commander of a hundred, when the centurion who stood facing him as the overseer and those who were with him, his other soldiers, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and saw that in this way he breathed his last, And when they saw what had taken place, they were filled with awe. Okay, earthquake, that'll rattle your cage. Darkness, that'll rattle your cage. There's a bunch of stuff that kind of was weird. But notice what they mentioned really caught their attention. It says what? When they saw that in this way he breathed his last, what got their attention? His breathing. What? How in the world is somebody's breathing rattle you more than an earthquake uh let's go back what do these guys do for a living well if you're in charge of the execution squad how many crucifixions have you seen about a million you know how this grow goes you understand what crucifixion is for crucifixion is a slow death that's the whole point of it you're supposed to get weak 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 and you just die you usually just run out of air and so the whole point is that you die quietly Now, you may scream and yell when you're up there on the cross at the beginning when you have energy, but eventually it takes too much energy. You just go quiet. 
Now, people can hang there for up to four days, maybe even five days, and you just slowly ebb away. No one ever dies from a crucifixion with drama. And what happens? This guy hangs on there as a tough man for six hours, gives up his breath, and he's gone. Okay, that's not normal. And they go, there's something different about him. I don't know who he is, but I know in that whole debate, I want to be on his side. That's what I do know, because that's not normal. All right? So, the centurion, it says, and he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Truly, this man was the son of God. Now, whenever a gospel writer writes about a character, usually that's because they were in the church at the time that he wrote. Uh, All tradition says that this guy got saved, became a part of the church, and it's likely that he knew the whole group. And they're like, man, I'll include your story. I remember you were right there. You were the one in charge of the whole execution. And when did you get saved? He's like, right then, man. When I saw him breathe like that, when I saw everything go down, I thought, he's the real deal. And right there, my life transformed. So he's telling his testimony. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle... All the crazy stuff happening when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. That's the sign of mourning, going, this shouldn't have happened. After we saw all this, I think we were on the wrong side. Or, wow, what's God going to do next? Because he's not pleased with what just happened. All right? It's a feeling of doom. It's a feeling of regret. It's a feeling of sorrow. It's a feeling of that's not right. And... In that situation, there were a lot of Jesus' acquaintances there, it says. And the many women were there, lots of disciples, looking on from a distance, watching these things because they weren't allowed too close to the cross, women who had followed Jesus from up north in Galilee, among whom, and we met these women last week, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, or Joseph, I believe that to be Jesus' mom, And Salome, the mother of the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, Jesus' best friends. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and they ministered to him, meaning they met his needs. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. One of the most respected commentaries that I watch over and I study from in order to prepare my messages is called the NICNT. The New International Commentary of the New Testament or Old Testament, whichever one. It's a scholarly writing, and it has one line I think that we need to soak into our minds. It said this. The concept and image of our mind, in our mind, that all of Jesus' disciples were men needs to be seriously re-racked. It's simply not true. Unlike any other rabbi in history, Jesus had women disciples. He allowed them to sit at his feet just like the men. He allowed them to minister to his needs just like the men. He allowed them to follow him just like the men. He allowed them to minister just like the men. He ended up grabbing them, even though society said they were not reliable witnesses, he's going to allow women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. He's going to allow women to be the witnesses of the cross. And you're going to keep seeing his inclusion of women. So, as much as the twelve apostles were men, The disciples were very much women as much as they were men. We need to understand that. 
that's powerful because Jesus was creating a whole revolution of who the family of God was. Very, very important. The other thing that I thought was interesting before I move on is that it said, and the women ministered to his needs. How cool would it be that your job is to bless Jesus when he's on earth? Here's a guy that's giving to everyone else. Here's a guy that even on the cross is worried about the salvation of the thief next to him. He's worried about his mom being taken care of. He's worried about, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing when they're hanging him on the cross. Here is the ultimate servant loving on everybody else. And you get the role of saying, Jesus, can I grab you a cup of coffee? How awesome is that? Jesus, do you need anything? Can I go grab you something? I'm thinking, man, that is the coolest job ever, being a personal assistant to the king. Man, how awesome to minister to his needs. And then it had dawned on me, that's what we get to do. That's what our lives are. Our lives are a living sacrifice that we might be able to serve him. We can never repay him. All we can do is minister to his needs. And what does he need? The one that has everything. He needs nothing but our obedience. He needs nothing other than our hearts. And so we only give him the one thing that he may not have, and that is our lives. Hmm. Since it was the day of preparation, that is Friday, so you would get all ready, eat a meal on Thursday. Friday, you've got to get ready for Sabbath. This is a special Sabbath because it's attached to Passover. It only happens once a year. That's a big deal. So everyone's going to lock down all of their society at 6 p.m. 6 p.m. is the cutoff time. Jesus died at 3 p.m. We only have a three-hour window to get everything done. And a lot of other people were already prepping their stuff, but anyone that was involved in Jesus, they were waiting for that moment. He dies at 3 p.m., three hours to get ready for Sabbath, and they got to find how they're going to do something with his body. All right? Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, a holy day, a special day. The Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, asked Pilate, the Roman governor, that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Okay, a couple things you need to understand. What's going on here? Why do you want to break somebody's legs to hurry up and get to church? Because they can hang there for a really, really long time. But those guys hanging there are Jews. The guys hanging there need to get off the cross according to the Jewish regulations. Now, the Romans don't care about Jewish regulations, and they're in charge. So if they would have said no, they normally just let people hang there for days, and then ultimately, if they don't need the cross back, they'll just let you decompose on there and then just knock you off and hang somebody else up there. The idea is that they just kind of let the dogs eat you or the birds. and They don't really care. That's the point of humiliation of crucifixion. You're not supposed to give them a burial. Now, every once in a while, if the family members would ask, they'll let you have them so you take out their trash. You understand what I'm saying? So in this situation, the Jews really wanted those bodies down because they don't want, according to their law, anyone hanging overnight. So they've got to get them down quickly. What's the problem? The dudes are still alive. They're still out there going, I'm still alive, I'm kicking, right? They're just going for it. Well, how do you get them to hurry up? Because you're like, hurry up and die, man. Well, the way that it works in crucifixion is you're hanging on the cross and you have to put yourself up for air. 
you're pushing yourself up on the nail, right? Well, that hurts, but it's better than not breathing. So you push yourself up. What if you can't push yourself up? You die fast. You suffocate. That's the point. So they come in with a mallet, bam, smack, break both your legs. It's only going to be a matter of minutes. We'll just wait on this, right? And then they die. So I, I guess here's my problem with this. And this could be a whole other sermon, right? Which is, how many times has the church crushed someone for religious reasons without any understanding of what it costs? And it, it seems really weird. It's kind of like, hey, in order to honor God, I need to wreck you. I, 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 doesn't that sound weird? And yet we're doing it all the time. Oh, that's not right. So sure enough, it says this. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. This is very important. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it, that's John, has borne witness his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. Why is this so important? Because it fulfilled scriptures, prophecies. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled in Numbers 9:12. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture in Zechariah 12:10. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Okay. Why are they poking him? What's the point? Why poke a dead guy? To make sure he's a dead guy, right? Does that make sense? So they have a six-foot spear. Now, here's what's interesting. The prophecy is not one of Jesus' bones can be broken. And I'll tell you what that prophecy means in a moment. But how do you pierce a guy without breaking his bones? If I'm to take a spear and pierce your heart, am I not going to have to go through your rib cage, right? And if I'm going to go through your rib cage, it's going to break a bone. But what happened here? He's hanging on a cross. He's above them. So what can you do but go under the rib cage, right? That's the whole point. You don't want to have to force it. You can go right up underneath. And they pierced his heart, and blood and water came out. Now, you could go, yeah, that's the pericardial sac, and that's the fluid around the heart. So, of course, you're going to have watery fluid, and you're going to have blood and all that stuff. John thought there was more to it than that. John thought it was heavily prophetic. Why? He links it to water baptism and the blood of the new covenant. He links it to communion and water baptism. He links it to two of the most important sacraments that the church has had throughout history. He links it and says, no, something else was going on here. What's the, what's the prophecy about no bones being broken? Is there any prophecy that says the Messiah's bones can't be broken? Not that I can think of. So where did he get that? What prophecy? What do you mean? And, and, and all the commentators and the scholars and even the Bible meant passages like Numbers 9, 12. What's, what's Numbers 9 talk about? It's a recipe. A recipe for what? The Passover meal. What is killed on a Passover meal? A lamb. What are you not supposed to do? Break any of its bones. Who is Jesus? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Passover lamb that dies for all of our sins. And so you prepare him just as you do a Passover lamb. Not one of his bones can be broken. Now, little pet peeve, 
And because I don't usually do the communion messages, I can mess with the guys that do. Uh, we always do communion messages, uh, and, and I don't want you to be distracted by this, but I got a little pet peeve I got to share with you. Whenever somebody does a communion message and they say, this is Jesus' body broken for you, it, it, it agitates me. Because, because, now what they mean is, symbolically, his body was shattered. And that's completely legit. So I'm not trying to get all Pharisee on everybody. What I'm saying is one of the important prophecies was that his bones weren't broken. So we need to be careful about talking about his bones being broken. Does that make sense? Uh, the other thing is it says they will look upon the one that they pierced. That is actually a messianic prophecy. I always think of the piercing as the hands and feet and the, uh, excuse me, the hands and the feet. I don't usually think about the side, but this is what John attached it to. He said, no, 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 he was pierced not only in hands and feet, but they rammed the whole spear into him. That's prophetic. All right? Then it says this. And after all these things, when evening had come, that means we're getting about 4 p.m., 5 p.m. Remember, you've got to shut down at 6. Since it was a day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, there was a rich man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a respected member of the Sanhedrin, the council that condemned Jesus. He was a Pharisee, a good and a righteous man who was also a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the other Jewish leaders. who He had not consented to their decision and action to condemn Christ, and he was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Okay, this is a special dude. Very unusual. He factors into a lot of stories. He factors into a ton of legend and tradition. If you've ever heard the whole concept of the Holy Grail, that actually all goes back to him. Uh, he allegedly went to England with the cup of the Last Supper filled full of the blood of Jesus on the cross, and that became the chalice that is the Holy Grail. So this guy got factored in all kinds of bogus stories, right? That is not legit, all right? But who is this guy? He's a rich guy. Why is that important? Because he's about to do things for the Lord that will fulfill prophecy that Jesus will be named with a rich man in his death. That's Joseph. Joseph steps in and he has to do something very important, which is get the body of Jesus. Now it says he didn't consent to Jesus' condemnation in the Sanhedrin council. Why is that unusual? Because when you read that story, it says they all unanimously condemned him. So how does that work? If he didn't vote and they said it was unanimous, what's the problem? Most likely answer, he wasn't even invited. The whole trial was bogus. Everything they did was wrong. It is likely that Caiaphas hated Jesus so much that he wanted to make sure he loaded the group with everyone that would agree with him. He didn't even invite anyone he had a question about or anyone that would be a detractor. They didn't even know about the meeting until it was too late. So he did not give his approval of this. But notice that he was a secret disciple. How many of us are secret disciples? Do you understand it is not a compliment when someone says to you, oh, really, you're a Christian? I had no idea. Right? If anyone says that to you, you should go, uh-oh, 
They should know, and they should know from a distance, that there's something different and that you're a believer. Now, if they come up to you and say, man, I noticed there's something super different about you, that you're loving and everything, what's going on? You said, I'm a Christian. They're like, wow, that's all good. But if they seem shocked, we have a problem. It says, this man took courage and went to Pilate and asked that he might take away the body of Jesus. It, was that hard to do? Uh-huh. Why? whole bunch of reasons. Give you a couple of them. It can't be secret anymore. What you think that the council that you're a part of, of which there's only 70 members, and two of you are secret disciples, 68 other people, if they're not into it, they're not going to be okay with the fact that they just went to the nth degree to crucify this guy, and now you're on his team. What, you really think you're going to be allowed to come to any more meetings? You just lost your entire group. You lost all the respect from everybody. You lost all your friends. You lost all your society. He went from being secret to public in one move. Unfortunately, it had to happen after Jesus died. Why couldn't he have lived for Jesus when he was alive? Now, we've got to give him credit. We can all sit there and condemn him and go, man, you were such a wimp. Blah, 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 blah. And we're condemning ourselves. Or we can also give this guy credit where credit is due, that when he finally did step up, he did it. Right? I mean, some of us are still secret. We still haven't gone public. We still didn't step up for Jesus. He dies for us, we don't live for him. He lays his life down, we can't even stand up. Right? What's going on with that? Why are we all right with that? But he ends up going public. He knows it's going to cost him everything. Not only that, he has to go ask for it from who? Pilate. How does Pilate feel about the religious leaders? He hates them. They just bullied him into crucifying an innocent man. They just threatened his job, his family, his livelihood. They said, if you don't crucify this man, we're going to go tell Rome on you and you're going to get busted. They just bullied their way in. Now one of their members, he doesn't know what's going on. One of their members comes back and says, hey, can I have the body, please? I need a favor. I don't want to give you a favor. I don't even like you people. I hated everything about that. He had to go suck it up and go talk to Pilate and ask for a favor. If Pilate doesn't say he can have the body, he can't have the body. Man, that's pretty nerve-wracking, right? He's putting everything on the line. This man took courage and went to Pilate and asked that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Why? He's like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, he ain't dead. I'll tell you this. That man that I questioned, he's tougher than all of us. That man, I mean, I've never seen resilience and tenacity like that guy. I have never seen strength like that. So do not tell me that guy died in, what, six hours? I've, the guys like him, they last forever. No, he's not dead. Give me a break. You're just trying to get him off the cross. And summoning the centurion, his guy that he trusts, the execution leader, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, Pilate ordered it to be given to Joseph and granted the corpse. Wow. And Joseph bought a linen shroud. That's like a bed sheet. Nicodemus, wait, who? He just pops in the story. He's another guy that was on the council. 
He's another secret disciple. He's another Pharisee. He's another guy that should have been standing up for Jesus, but never did. He too got transformed by the death of Jesus and realized I should have done more. So he turned it around as well. Nicodemus also, her earlier had come to Jesus by night, asking about salvation, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. Nobody has that but kings. So they're going to give him a king burial. That's pretty awesome. Then they took the body down, probably with their servants, because two guys couldn't do it. You need a whole crew. Uh, if you're going to do it right, that is. I mean, if you just throw it off, you can do that. But they wanted to do it in an honoring way. They took the body down, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Okay, real quick. You're going to find out at the resurrection, there's strips of linen there. So was it a shroud or was it strips of linen? The answer is yes. What you do is you take the body down from the cross and you wash it completely. That's a cleansing thing. You then wrap it in a bed sheet. You wrap it in a shroud. You then put all over it good smellums, right? You got to jam that thing with perfume and resin and aromatic herbs, and you're jamming it on there because you're about to lay them in a tomb that you go in and out of. Well, decomposition doesn't smell great. So they put in all this other stuff. So once the sheet is down, you lay all that stuff and stick it to the sheet, pack it on there, and then wrap them around like a mummy so all that stays in. Make sense? Now you're going to go, well, they mummified him. No, they didn't. Egyptians do mummification. That's the embalming process. You remove the organs when you do that. Nobody removed his organs. They just wrapped him up. So he may have looked mummified, but he wasn't mummified, all right? That's a cool word to say. He looked mummified, but he wasn't mummified. All right, here we go. I don't know why that was important to me. But. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, Joseph's own new tomb, which he had cut in stone rock, where no one had ever been laid. So because it was a Jewish day of preparation and that the Sabbath was beginning, they were running out of time. Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there out of practicality and kindness. And they rolled a great stone against the entrance of the tomb and they went away. The women who had come with him from Galilee, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the mother of Joseph, followed and sitting opposite the tomb, saw how and where his body was laid. Then they returned and they prepared spices and ointments because they were going to come back the next day and do more work. But on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. All right, let me tell you about the tomb. The tomb goes like this, is... Normal poor people, regular people, they don't get anything fancy. When you have a lot of dollars, you pay for a family tomb. A family tomb means that they will go into solid rock and excavate it out. Now, you've got to remember, we're not dealing with bobcats and all these different things that we can cut. and you know They don't have any of those tools. This is hand cut. You've got to cut inside solid rock rooms. So the way it would work is that you would walk in through a small doorway and it opens up into a chamber. There would be little alcoves that had benches or uh, just stone shelves, right? So you'd cut out a shelf 
and you'd be able to go in and these guys had to hurry. They would lay the body down on the shelf and get out because multiple people were used for that tomb. In other words, you had a place for mom, you had a place for dad, you had a place for sister, you had a place, but because everyone died at different times, they would wait for the bodies to decompose into bones. Then they'd either scoop them aside or they'd put them in a, a bone box called an ossuary, set that aside, and now the bench is open for the next person. They lay the next person down. They decompose, put it in a box, stick it aside. Next person. That's how the tombs work. So all they had to do was walk in, lay Jesus down, and get out of there. Now the door had to be openable, but solid. So they make big disc-shaped stone doors that they create a channel that it rolls in that is uphill and downhill. When you lock it, you go downhill, and it makes it easy. One guy, two guys can lock it but you need a whole crew to unlock it because you're rolling uphill into the channel. Why is that important? Because you got to keep out animals and grave robbers. And unless the grave robbers come with a whole team, they can't get back into your tomb. What are they going to steal? You put family valuables in there. That's why it's a rich tomb. So they went in and they were able to turn it and lock it. You're going to notice that when the women come the next day, they can't unlock it. That's what they're worried about. How are they going to get someone to unlock the door? All right? We all good? Let's close it out. It says this. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation or Sabbath, uh, on the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter Jesus said while he was still alive, after three days, I'm going to get up again. Which I find ironic that they remembered that, but the disciples weren't really remembering that. Huh, that's weird. Therefore, order the tomb, they're telling Pilate, the governor, who hates their guts. Order that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have temple guards. You have a group of soldiers. Why don't you go make it as secure as you can? So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Okay. There's two important pieces on that. Number one, what day were they talking to Pilate? The Sabbath. How do the Jewish leaders feel about the Sabbath? What are you supposed to do on the Sabbath? Nothing. What are they doing? Work. Their hatred for Jesus made them violate one of the number one commandments of all Judaism. Don't mess with the Sabbath. They didn't even care. They were willing to violate God's heart to kill his son. You understand how messed up this is? Secondly, I mean, we could go through the whole guard thing, but it's not that important. Here's the most important thing to me. They think they can keep Jesus down. That's not going to work out real well. I don't care how secure you make that tomb. If God can cause an earthquake, God can get out of anywhere. Here's what I want us to think about as we kind of finish this out. Some things are worth remembering. And I think it's important that we live every day in light of the cross. 
I think it's important that we remember what he did so we can remember what we're supposed to do. So some of us, we need to just take a moment as I close in prayer and rededicate our lives to Christ and say, Lord, I'm not standing for you. I get it. And that is embarrassing. After all that you've done, Lord, after all the power you've empowered me with, by the presence of your Holy Spirit, I will stand when I need to stand. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go around, shove it down people's throats, be rude. That violates the law of love. That is not right. But what I am telling you to do is I want people to know that you're a Christian. Because you are to be salt and light, but if salt doesn't even use its flavor, what is the point? If you have a light and you hide it under a bushel, what's that going to do? We need to live for Him because He died for us. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, right now we dedicate our hearts to You again. And we say that, Lord, we will not allow our pride or our fear to shut us down. We will live in constant, as much as we can, in light of the cross, in light of understanding that we have all the power we need to live, that we do not have to be afraid of mankind, that only your voice matters. We live in light of forgiveness so that we don't live in shame. We live in light of grace so we don't live in condemnation. We live and we remember the cross that says that because you set us free, we will be free indeed. Because of all that glory, because of all that love, because of all that power, because of all that you've done, we dedicate ourselves afresh to you and we say, yes, Lord, we are on your team. We are chasing after you. We will stand for you. We will love on your behalf. We will push past our own petty problems and we will make it about you. We will reach out to our community because they need so badly your love. And we will not allow selfishness to drive our actions. That we will live in light of the cross that if you lived as a servant, we can live as a servant. And so right now, Father, as you have welled up in our spirit the desire to say, yes, God, we agree with you. And we say, yes, God, make us the men and women you've designed us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.